it really was the worst decision I've ever seen a government do. The Silicon Valley bank crisis started when the government shut down the economy during the period from 2020 to 2021. Let's take a step back to January 29th of 2020 when President Donald Trump announced a White House Coronavirus Response Task Force with Director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, Anthony Fauci, with Deborah Briggs as coordinator. The decision to shut down the economy originated from this body, but was ultimately implemented by President Trump, members of Congress, and eventually President Joe Biden. This decision was truly the worst decision I have ever seen a government make in my lifetime. And unfortunately, it was implemented by other governments around the world, where we ended up with a global economic shutdown. What kind of person would think that you could turn an economy off and then turn it back on without massive, severe consequences? During that time, businesses and individuals saw their revenues collapse and were unable to pay the costs necessary to sustain their businesses and livelihoods. It's estimated that three to six million students left school in the U.S. to never return. Countries in Africa and other places that weren't able to have school online through Zoom basically just saw school closed for a long period of time. The damage that this caused on students worldwide is massive. In addition, estimates by various NGOs, three different ones that I looked at about a year ago, estimated that about 100 million people were pushed into poverty as a result of this government policy. The estimates were that 75 million people in India were pushed into poverty. And let me tell you, when you get pushed into poverty, it's very likely that your family or yourself will not get back out in that lifetime. It really was the worst decision I've ever seen a government do. Now, the US government then came up with various programs to distribute money to these struggling businesses and individuals. Unfortunately, the government did not have this money to distribute. And as we all learn in Political Science 101, the source of any government funds, of course, comes from its citizens. But in this case, citizens and businesses were reeling from the government's shutdown of the economy. Hence, they had no money. So the only choice the US government had was to borrow money. But the US Treasury Department could not borrow from the population as, again, citizens were in dire straits. Normally, the U.S. government would be able to borrow from foreigners or foreign investors. However, as other countries were also suffering and for various geopolitical reasons, foreigners didn't buy much U.S. government debt at the time. In fact, in 2014, foreigners owned about $6.2 trillion of U.S. Treasury Department bonds. And five years later, with the debt rising in 2019, they only own slightly more at about 6.8 trillion US dollars. Throughout the crisis, the US Treasury Department was only able to get about $1 trillion of foreign money to buy 
U.S. treasuries. But the U.S. government needed a lot more money than that to plug this hole of a shutdown of the economy. In fact, between the end of 2019 and the end of 2021, the U.S. government borrowed 6.4 trillion U.S. dollars, causing U.S. total U.S. government debt to rise to 29.6 trillion dollars by the end of 2021. That's 122% of GDP. It's levels that the U.S. hasn't seen since the end of World War II. So the U.S. government needed. $6.4 trillion and couldn't get it from taxpayers or businesses at that time. So where did they get it? Well, first, as I mentioned earlier, they got about a trillion dollars from foreign investors, which left about $5.6 trillion needed. Now, in this case, the solution was for the Federal Reserve to step in and lend money to the U.S. Treasury Department. Now, the Fed is not allowed to buy bonds directly from the U.S. Treasury. So the largest banks bought the bonds from the Treasury and then offloaded most of them to the Fed. The total assets of the Fed grew by $4.6 trillion from $4.6 trillion at the end of 2019 to $8.8 trillion by the end of 2021. That's a $4.6 trillion increase. So if foreigners wouldn't buy U.S. treasuries and Americans wouldn't buy U.S. treasuries, then the Fed would. Now, from 2020 to 2021, the U.S. government spent $12 trillion in spending to try to save American businesses and individuals from the shutdown of the economy. And they only took in about $5 trillion worth of taxes. So they spent... 12 trillion from 2020 to 2021, and they took in 5 trillion. It's an incredible amount of government spending, the highest level of government deficits that I've seen in my lifetime. And I think it's quite possible that it isn't even going to slow down. Now, the result of this massive injection of money was that deposits of individuals and companies at the US banks increased by $4.7 trillion during 2020 and 2021 which brings us back to Silicon Valley Bank. Now, the banks in general put about half of that money or about $2.2 trillion into cash, and they just kept cash on their balance sheets. And a third of those deposits, or about $1.6 trillion US dollars, went into securities at the time when interest rates were close to zero. So they were buying government securities, but they were yielding almost nothing. Now, in 2000. To give you an example of where things were at, in 2020, U.S. 10-year Treasury bonds yielded less than 1% at 0.9%. And that went up to about 1.5% in 2021. So the government had already obviously been keeping interest rates super low, and we can see ultra-low long-term government bond rates. And so that's what the banks were buying, was these low-yielding government bonds, let's say 1% to 1.5% on 10-year treasuries. So let's just say, on average, they were buying bonds that were yielding about 1%. Now, let's look at banks for a second. Banks generally receive short-term deposits and lend that to companies on a long-term basis. But in 2020 and 2021, there was enough concern about the economy, which had been shut down, that banks didn't lend much. Instead, they put that money into cash and securities. 
It's worth noting that during March of 2020, the price of bonds, especially high-risk bonds, started crashing, right? So banks were not lending to companies in 2020. The economy was being shut down. And all of a sudden, investors started to panic and started to doubt if companies would be able to repay those bonds given the state of the economy. So now we're talking about corporate bonds and the price of high-risk corporate bonds started crashing. What happened? Well, the Fed came up with a creative move. The Fed, together with the Treasury Department, came up with a scheme to save the bond market by announcing that they would hire BlackRock to help them buy bonds in the market to support bond prices. This was unprecedented and could have been seen as violating the letter of the law, which generally prevents the Fed from buying bonds in the open market. But if that was you hiding your ownership behind other entities, you would get in a lot of trouble. In fact, there's all kinds of know your client type regulations going on where the government is constantly pushing us to reveal who is the ultimate beneficiary. Well, here the ultimate beneficiary was not supposed to be buying bonds in the open market, but that was the Fed doing that through the structure that they created. Now, the prior main Fed intervention was after the 2008 crisis when the Fed bought US treasuries and mortgage-backed securities through its quantitative easing program. Basically, interest rates went down to zero and no longer could the Fed impact the overall economy and the banking system by adjusting interest rates. So they decided to start buying treasuries from the banks and giving the banks cash. So let's go back to Silicon Valley Bank. This bank appeared to be overexposed to the tech sector and the startup community. And of course, it was a regional bank, right? This was not a problem when things were riding high. In fact, SVB or Silicon Valley Bank took in lots of deposits from the above described government stimulus and from IPOs and profitable period of 2021 when startups and tech companies were all the rage. Remember, tech valuations in the stock market went up massively in 2020 and particularly in 2021. But when these types of companies started to experience a slowdown, right? They saw their market capitalization collapse and their profitability weaken. This meant that these companies started to have more of a need for the deposits that they had at Silicon Valley Bank. And so they started removing those deposits. Now, let's continue on and look at the Fed for a minute. So what happened is that, remember, I'm telling you that Silicon Valley Bank, you can go back to the policies of the Fed to try to understand how they actually caused this. Now, that doesn't absolve the management of Silicon Valley Bank. They should have done risk management, and we'll talk about that in a second. But let's continue on. So then the Fed started increasing interest rates on February 2022. And... By one year later, they had moved rates up to 4.5% from nearly zero, sending shockwaves through the economy. This rise in interest rates meant that all the bonds that the banks were holding, remember they were buying bonds at about 1% with all the excess deposits that were coming rushing in to the banking system because of government injections of money into businesses and individuals' bank accounts. Basically, what happened is that the value of those bonds, when those interest rates rose, 
the value of those bonds fell from as little as 10% if they were shorter term maturity and as much as 30 or 40% if they were longer term maturity. And basically that knocked a massive amount of the value off of those bonds. Now, the government allows a bank to avoid showing those unrealized losses by classifying those bonds as held to maturity, which was what the banks were likely to do with them, right? They were going to just hold them. However, what happened with SVB was that its customers started withdrawing deposits aggressively, which forced the bank to sell those held to maturity bonds to raise the cash needed to repay the deposits. Now, it's worth mentioning here that this concept of not requiring unrealized losses to be booked on held to maturity bonds does make some sense, right? If you think about it, if you buy a bond that pays, let's say 3%, and then you buy a bond from the government pays 3%, and it's a 10-year bond, and you think, I want to hold that for 10 years, you're going to get 3% every single year, and then you'll get your money back at the end of the period. And particularly if it's a government bond, there's no risk, credit risk that they won't pay. The end result of that is that you have a very predictable steady stream of income. But what happens if you don't want to sell it, don't want to hold it to maturity? All of a sudden, you become a victim of what's happening in the market. If interest rates go up, the value of that bond could go down. And if you wanted to sell it in the market, you'd have to sell it at a loss. Now, basically, when deposits are being yanked out of a bank and they have a lot of securities, they have to sell those securities. And that forces the bank to make those unrealized losses real. Now, very quickly, because remember that a, a typical company has equity of about 40% of assets, but a bank has equity of about 10% of assets. That means if assets were to fall in value of about 10%, boom, you've wiped out the equity of the bank. So very quickly, this removal of deposits and the forced selling of these government bonds wiped out Silicon Valley Bank's capital. And the bank had to be taken, taken over by the FDIC or the Federal Deposit Insurance Company, which resolves bank crises. Now, on March 12th, the Fed announced a joint statement with the Treasury Department and the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, to, quote, protect the U.S. economy by strengthening public confidence in our banking system, unquote. In it, they stated that depositors of Silicon Valley Bank in California will have access to all of their money starting Monday, March 13th, and that no losses associated with the resolution of Silicon Valley Bank will be borne by the taxpayer. Hmm. Now, they also announced the same for Signature Bank in New York, which was also going bust. The irony of Signature Bank is that the guy at the center of passing the well-intentioned Post-2008 bank legislation, Barney Frank was a board member of Signature Bank since 2015. Frank was a longtime congressman from Massachusetts, and a quote from the bank's website, was instrumental in crafting the short-term $550 billion rescue plan in response to the nation's 2008-2009 financial crisis. Later, he co-sponsored the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act, which was signed into law in July 2010. Close quote. That act, the Dodd-Frank Act, created the 
Financial Stability Oversight Council and the Office of Financial Research to identify threats to the financial stability of the United States and gave the Federal Reserve new powers to regulate systemically important institutions. Now, this is a really important point. This codified the concept of too big to fail, which from my recollection was started by the big banks, convincing the government that they're too big to fail. The too big to fail storyline helped the largest banks gain protection from the US government. The irony of Barney Frank being involved in this bailout and this crash is rich. Now, also, the statement that was made by the government was clarified that shareholders and certain unsecured debt holders will not be protected. Senior management will be removed and any losses to the deposit insurance fund to support uninsured depositors will be recovered by a special assessment on banks as required by law. The announcement from this trio that was repeated by President Biden made the claim that no taxpayer funds will be used. Well, that reminds me of the old saying, how do you know when a politician is lying? Well, how do you know? The answer to that question is when he moves his lips. Now, we all know that it's nonsense that no taxpayer funds will be used because all government funds ultimately come from the taxpayers. Now, they may claim that these funds will come from other banks, but we also know that any bank or business must pass on increased government regulatory costs. So my fact-checking tells me that is a lie. Ultimately, taxpayer funds will be used. Now, finally, the Federal Reserve Board on Sunday announced that it will make additional funding to eligible depository institutions to help assure banks can meet the needs of all their depositors. So what they're telling you in this is that they are afraid that this could become a systemic problem. And how do they stop that? Well, they called this program the Bank Term Funding Program, or BTFP, which will offer loans up to one year to any U.S. federally insured depository institution, pledging U.S. treasuries, agency debt, and mortgage-backed securities and other qualifying assets as collateral, as long as that collateral was owned as of March 12th. So a bank can't go out and buy government bonds, for instance, in the market after March 12th, and then pledge them to this bank term funding program. It's got to be existing securities that are on their book. Now, the key to this measure is that these assets will be valued at par, which will allow these banks to avoid having to offload those securities at a loss. Remember, we know that because interest rates rose, the value of those bond portfolios of the banks fell between 10 and maybe 30%, depending on the maturity of their portfolio. But here the Fed comes in and says, you don't have to suffer those losses. The idea is that the Fed could hold those bonds for a year and then return them to those banks when they maybe could handle those losses, or maybe interest rates come back down and then those losses aren't there anymore. Remember that one of the arguments that I've made for a long time is the Fed is going to eventually break something with its rising interest rates and that eventually rates will come down. If the Fed knows it's going to be bringing down rates in the next six months, they know that those unrealized losses will disappear. So they announced that the Department of the Treasury using the Exchange Stabilization Fund would provide $25 billion as credit protection to the Federal Reserve Banks in connection with the program. Now, the hope, I'm sure, is that the 
funds will not be needed to be used because it will calm everybody down from getting rid of their deposits at smaller banks and shifting them to bigger ones. So this hints that the government's worried that depositors at smaller banks will attempt to withdraw their deposits and that this program will prevent the banks from experiencing the losses that were experienced by Silicon Valley Bank. So another way of think of this is that if this measure had been implemented just one week ago, Silicon Valley Bank would not have gone bust. So here we have government policies coming in. And as I would say, this is another well-intentioned government intervention into the banking system. It is meant to stabilize things and it likely will in the short run, but it also raises moral hazard in the banking sector and prevents poorly managed banks from suffering from their bad policies. Now, this brings me to bad policies. Silicon Valley Bank had a simple solution to the dilemma they faced of having a massive amount of short-term deposits rush into their bank and they invested into long-term government bonds. They could have put in place basic risk management measures such as interest rate swaps as an example, which would allow it to protect their banks, the bank against the risk of interest rates rising. But unlike well-run banks, apparently they didn't do this. Now it's important to remember that government intervention is not a part of capitalism. Nope, it was never taught in school. It was never taught in the books. No, government intervention is not part. Now government legislation and building the framework through which capitalism exists does happen. Instead, it's a policy that politicians and people feel is the right thing to do when things don't turn out the way they were planned. The problem with government intervention is that it causes unintended consequence. The famous economist Milton Friedman said, one of the great mistakes is to judge government policies and programs by their intentions rather than their results. So let's review the US government's policies over the past decades. Well, one that I didn't even have time to expand upon, but would love to talk more about later, is that the government pushed Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which are secondary mortgage buyers, to achieve extreme affordable housing goals, which substantially reduced the quality of housing loans in America. And it also brought millions more people into the housing market, which led to the 2007 peak of the housing market prices and then the subsequent bust. What else has the government done? Well, the Fed lowered interest rates to near zero in 2008, 2009, and kept them close to that for more than a decade. This is ridiculous. Keeping interest rates so low for so long brings so many problems into an economy as opposed to a market set interest rate. Now the Fed, another one is the Fed started quantitative easing in 2008, buying assets from the banks and injecting liquidity into the market. And another one is that the government bailed out the banks in 2008 and failed to prosecute any major bankers for malfeasance or fraud or anything like that. Now in 2020 and 2021, the US government shut down the US economy, another government intervention, well-intentioned, of course, they cut interest rates to near zero and the Fed and the US Treasury injected more money than ever imagined into the economy. Another thing that people sometimes forget is that in 2020, the Fed and the Treasury for the first time bought bonds in the bond market to prevent prices from crashing. Again, government intervention. In 2022, the Fed went on a 12-month rampage of rising interest rates, bringing rates from nearly zero to close to 5%. 
this was the fastest rate hike seen in my lifetime. And at the time, we've repeated that this, you know, I continue to repeat that this is likely going to break something in the economy. And something did break, SVB in the banking sector. And now, once again, the government has intervened in the bond market by announcing that it will buy bonds of banks facing losses on those bonds so as to prevent them from realizing those massive losses and going bust. So as I wrap up, I wanted to highlight that government programs always come with unintended consequences. They also come with good intentions, but unintended consequences. Political leaders meddle in the economy and meddle with capitalism with the best of intentions, but slowly and steadily marches towards more dangerous places. Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, interestingly, both from Democrat-controlled states, California and New York, the depositors of those banks are going to get their money back and other regional banks will survive the rush to withdraw deposits and move them to larger banks. But at what cost? There's now more risk in the banking system and because of that, more moral hazard. And a large amount of deposits is likely moving as we speak to the largest banks, strengthening their leadership position. It's quite possible that this will not seriously damage the banking industry and bank funds or ETFs may not get hit as many of them are concentrated in the large banks. In fact, they could gain from this. But in the end, government intervention in the bank sector just takes away from the power of capitalism and brings on new risks. And this is my brief idea about the Silicon Valley bank crisis and how it was initially caused by the shutdown, the U.S. government shutdown of the U.S. economy.